So Matthew chapter 26, we see Jesus uh, anointed, one of the more powerful um, passages in all of Scripture. Uh, I'm just going to make a mention of it, um, not because it has anything to do with the sermon, but because Jesus said to always make mention of it, and for some reason, folks like me, preachers like me, um, don't do what Jesus asked. And that's right before we see the, the Lord's Supper, Jesus is, is anointed with perfume as he's sitting there, as he's reclining at the table. Picture Middle Eastern table, shorter table, pillows, more that kind of thing where you can actually recline at a table. And as Jesus is doing that, he uh, has a whole alabaster jar of, of expensive perfume poured over his head. Uh, I was at Corbin University two weeks ago and speaking at a chapel there, and they have the West Coast's largest collection of um, Middle Eastern artifacts, believe it or not, like in their library. There's just some professors that went way back um, into kind of the the heart of the, the Corbin years, which used to be Western Baptist, and they would travel a lot and come back with all these antiquities and artifacts. And it was actually the little perfume jars and vases that caught my eye and were really fascinating to me, just, just like nothing had, had changed in 2,000 years. Um, but all these little jars and these little vases um, that would hold different kinds of things. And so if you picture a little alabaster jar with, with expensive oils that's been perfumed um, and that this is lavishly dumped over Jesus' head. And the disciples say this perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Is that not Jesus' very message, right? Isn't that what Jesus kind of was always telling his disciples? And so it's one of these ironic times where Jesus they think they're getting it right, and then Jesus kind of counters them and, and keeps trying to push them deeper. Like, think deeper about the heart of things, not just the legalistic kind of surface of things. And so Jesus says to them, why are you bothering this woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. And when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Jesus knows where he's going he knows what he's been called to. He's already in anguish in some sense, if you can think about it. And he says this in, in verse 13, I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, wherever the, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, because he died for sins, which is a, about to happen. So this gospel that he is, is purchasing over the next number of hours, whenever that gospel is preached, um, what she has done will also be told. Why? In memory of Jesus because of the great thing he's about to do, in memory of that momentous occasion, in, in memory of the power of God that's going to that's gonna resurrect Jesus from the grave, in, in memory of, what's it in memory of? It's in memory of her. It's in memory of her. I uh, was, and you've heard me tell the story before, but I was recently sent an article. Did I just tell this story like a week ago? I've been living with it, so maybe I 
Anyways, um, I have four daughters, and as people will come up to us, they'll always say, oh, we're sorry. <laughs> and then they'll say, bet you were hoping for a boy. Well, didn't you think maybe about continuing on? Or, and, and it just shows a gender bias that's so deep in our culture. Um, that our daughters will oftentimes look to Tamara afterwards and say, did you really wish I was a boy? Did dad, did dad wish I was a boy? And there's this perceived inferiority. I, I have now for three summers in a row had the, the, the female interns come to me and as a group want to talk to me about women's roles in ministry and where Antioch is at and and what, what, how are they supposed to envision their life and their giftedness in serving God? And, and it's, it's really confusing to them. And, and I kind of walk them through all of it and try and be as empowering as I can. And I say to them at the end, here's what you need to hear from me. I'm sorry that we've done this to you. And they go, what do you mean? I said, what I mean is this. No guys have ever come to me and said, Ken, can you sit us down as guys and talk about... Um, our role in serving the king, that we're really confused about this? Can you, can you help us with our gender? I'm like, you have to dig out of this hole before you can even get to like a level set. And I'm sorry for that. And, and so the funny thing is, is for a long time, we would preach all these passages, we being pastors. Um, and has anyone ever heard in memory of her, preached as part of the gospel message? I've never heard it preached. There's a thing called confirmation bias. When you get with a group and you guys just begin to self-reinforce um, or we begin to self-reinforce the herd mentality, that kind of whatever our conclusions already are, are are kind of the things that we begin to confirm we find different things to just add credence to what we already think and how we already view the world. And I just want to tell you, Jesus turns our thinking upside down right here. And then he's about to turn it upside down again. But if we just jump straight to that part, which really is centered on us as individuals, that we take this message of his blood and his, um, kind of poured out for us and his body broken for us and that he is going to save us. If we just go to grab that individual message without seeing the cultural and social and grace-filled way in which Jesus kind of revolutionized and recentered and reframed our thinking, then, then we're just we're kind of missing the whole story. We're not getting the whole of the good news. That has nothing to do with the sermon today. But Jesus commanded that if I tripped into Matthew 26, that this woman who had lavish love for her Savior would be honored. So I honor her this morning. The Lord's Supper. Jesus sends his disciples, beginning in verse 17, to go prepare uh, and to make preparations to eat the Passover. He goes into the city. They go into the city and they find... um, a house, they find a room, and when the evening came, so this is Matthew 26, verse 20, Jesus was reclining at the table with them. Uh, again, we have to get out of our preconceptions about table and chairs. This is first century Palestine. Jesus is reclining at the table with the 12, 
And while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. And they were very sad. Sad's kind of an interesting word there. They're very sad. And began to say to one another, surely not I, Lord. Like, I, it's not going to be me, really. Um, one of the most strangely ironic statements in all of Scripture. Why was Jesus put to death on the cross? Yeah, for the sins of the world. So ironically, they're saying, like, I'm not actually the one that's going to do this to you, am I? And at the deeper level, the answer is, yeah. 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 You are. Um, but specifically, it's the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me. He will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it was written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. When was the last time you dipped your hand into a bowl? Anybody? Do we typically dip our hand into a bowl? If you go to Ethiopia, you will. In Jari, the bread, you'll, you'll take it and you'll, you'll dip or, or kind of, or just mush up uh, the food, and it's a very communal meal that way. If you go to the Middle East, um, you might take bread and dip, um, dip it into a bowl that way. But we're talking about, again, a, a very, a, a, this, is, this is in a place and in a culture, first century Palestine, and Jesus says, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl will betray me. The first thing I want to talk about with regard to communion or the Lord's Supper as, as we celebrate it is that I, I'm kind of just over all the conversations that have to do with style. When I was in Baptist churches, it was a little wafer in a little plastic cup, and in the pew in front of you, it had a little round hole that you could put the plastic cup. You know what I'm talking about? Um, and that was how you did it. Uh, and it was uh, silver trays in a, in a wood table that looked like they should have spent more money on it um, or hired Ken Michelson to do it because they always just looked a bit clunky, but then it had etched in the front a phrase that said what? Do this in remembrance of me. See? Okay. <laughs> There's a style to how we do it. Was there a table when Jesus reclined that had etching in it? No. So doing it that way, is it the right way? Is it the wrong way? No. It's a way of doing it. Um, in other traditions, it's done different ways. In the Northwest or with a lot of church plants, it's, it's at the front. You come down to what would be our altar and you take the bread and rip the bread because that was much more the way bread would be eaten. It would be ripped, um, not, not a prepackaged kind of wafer. Um, and you can dip it in wine or grape juice because there was no grape juice back then. It was actually invented in the late 1800s by a guy by the name of Dr. Welch for the purpose of taking alcohol out of the communion cup. 
was grape juice, Welch's grape juice, was invented to bring a certain style or preference to communion. Did you know that? Interesting, right? But so you dip it. Now, that's not the right way. It's not the wrong way either. It's a way. But I always get told it's wrong. You're not supposed to dip anything. Um, You're supposed to do the bread first and then the cup, and it's supposed to be an actual cup, a little shot glass. I always thought it was interesting. They look like little shot glasses that that fit in the pew. And then I, I used to sit there and think, wow, the people that make the pews must also make the glasses because they're in, because it's a money-making scheme. Like there are standardized sizes for this. It's the communion industrial complex. Um, but it's a certain style. And this is a style. It's not about how you do it. It's a deeper thing. So Thanksgiving, do we all do it the same way here? No. Is it really about how you do the Thanksgiving meal that's really at the heart of Thanksgiving? Now, Thanksgiving certainly has become to mean in our culture a, a family time, very relational time. That's what it means. It doesn't mean, I'm not going to get into historical things and all that. I'm talking about culturally today, right now, that's at the heart of it. And you can do it a lot of different ways. Uh, we do it this way. I claimed it like five years ago. I woke up one day and realized now that I'd been married a certain amount of time, we, we didn't have to go do what other people wanted us to do on holidays that I could dictate. It was like a, a power moment in my life. And I claimed Thanksgiving. And I said, this is my holiday. You get a day off afterwards. Um, you, it's just, this is the holiday I want, and we're going to do it my way. So what we do is we have Travis and, and Linda Van Voorst, emphasis on Travis this time. Um, it's usually, like when we're talking church stuff, it's emphasis on Linda. But Thanksgiving, it's emphasis on Travis because the football games are on the whole time. And it's buffet style. That is my Thanksgiving. And Tamara has wonderfully and graciously, and I would like to think. Um, because that's what she wants, um, allowed for this to become a big part of our Thanksgiving relational thing. Now, um, is that the way you would do it? Some of you are thinking about it like, mm, sounds, sounds, sounds kind of good. <laughs> some, some of you wives are like elbowing your husbands and being like, don't even think about it. <clears throat> TV's off. Um, But if we get hyper-focused on the how you do symbolism, it becomes a a standard or a rule or a bar that we're trying to meet, and it kind of begins to make the thing not fun. If we collapse the deeper symbolism into an actual picture that we have to replicate, then it kind of becomes tyrannical. Do you know what I mean by that? Have you ever tried to recreate a holiday experience that you had, like, Man, it was so wonderful. We watched a Christmas story, and we roasted marshmallows, and we did this, and it was the first time our kids and us, like it was magical. And then the next year, you try it again, and the kids fight, and they don't want to watch it, and they're complaining about why it's in black and white, and, and the whole thing is ruined, and you're like, how do I get back 
to that. Well, it's not about Jimmy Stewart. You got to like, you know what I'm saying? Like you got to make it about the deeper symbolism, not the picture itself. The picture, if we make that the idol, becomes tyrannical. Um, I don't know if it has anything to do with this, but I was reading this interesting article yesterday about what they called um, Peyton Manning fatigue. And he's having the best life of anybody, um, let alone like the best football career of anybody, and probably the best two years of any quarterback. And he just broke like the best record, one of the best records in the NFL. And everyone's kind of like, yeah, we're a little sick of Peyton Manning. <laughs> we want some other things. You know, but when you, when you boil it down to just one thing, um, we learned this with Creed, didn't we? Like when you over-focus on, on one thing for too long, then you kind of like decide after a little while you're over it. Ironically enough, this is what you too, like that whole free download with iTunes, they made that mistake and they're like, oh, shoot. And they're trying to like backpedal. We're sorry we gave away free music. Like, because if you over create the picture, after a while we get tired of it. Okay, if you really want deep symbolism with your family, with family vacations, with holidays, with things that, that mean something, Try to resist framing a picture of how it should be because we can't live up to pictures. We can't live up to preferences. We can only live up to deeper symbolic reality. Does that make sense? So when we come to do the table here, we're supposed to talk about women first and how much Jesus turns cultural norms upside down. And then... When we talk about the memory of her, we're then supposed to talk about Jesus and what Jesus did. He says, take and eat, this is my body. And then he takes the cup and he gives thanks and he offers it to them. He says, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for forgiveness of sins. And then they sung a hymn. I love that. They didn't sing Hillsong or Matt Redman. They got done with, with communion, with the Passover meal, and they sung a hymn, and then they went out to the Mount of Olives to pray. Jesus took the Passover meal, and he reconfigured it and, and puts himself at the center. Um, if you will, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and it's just my second thought, and then we're going to move into a time of actually celebrating the Lord's Supper. But, but chapter 11, verse 23, this is Paul now writing to the church at Corinth. And 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, it says this, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. So in other words, here's the teaching. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in, rem in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant, not the old covenant, but the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you, pro you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So again, what's happening is there's this thing called the Passover meal. The Passover meal was instituted when the, the, it was the last miracle when the firstborn sons died in Egypt as God was, through Moses, rescuing the Israelites out of slavery. And they, they did the Passover meal there, and their sons lived. In other words, they, they didn't fall under the judgment. They were protected by blood that was literally from a lamb without blemish that was painted onto their door frames. So they were under a covenant of blood. And they came out, and God set them free through this miracle. And then as they move into the desert, God now says to them, I want you to continue to celebrate this meal. You're going to do it as a festival. You're going to do it to remember what I did in bringing you out of Egypt, out of slavery, by the blood of the Lamb. This is going to be the Passover meal. Okay? Do you know that the Passover shows up in four of the five books of the Pentateuch? Pentateuch, the first five books of the law, the, 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 the Hebrew law, the Hebrew scriptures, it shows up in all but the book of Genesis. All but the book of Genesis. It's an incredibly important thing that God institutes, and he, and he specifies how it's supposed to be done. And he says, you as my people are going to regularly sit in a place where the, the dominant symbolism is, is, is not as much getting it perfect as it is looking back to the deliverance and to the salvation and the redemption that came as I implemented this thing called the Passover meal. And I want you to remember that I'm the God who saves. I'm the God who redeems. I'm the God who provides. Because life is going to be difficult for you. Life is going to be confusing. You're going to tend to forget that I move and that I act and that I take care of my people. You're going to have doubts. You're going to have questions. You're going to suffer even. And so regularly you're going to come back and find that touch point so that in the moment it will restore or renew your faith and rejuvenate your hope because I am the God who saves. That's what God did with the Passover. So Jesus now, as they're celebrating the Passover, remembering that God is the God who saves, he says, now, as you do this, in other words, Jesus anticipated that, that they, as, as Jews, would continue to celebrate the Passover. But as Jewish Christians, he was saying to them, but don't look back all the way to Egypt now in the blood of a lamb that was without blemish. You look to me, the lamb slain for the sins of the world. And you remember me, that there's a new covenant, that you can have forgiveness of your sins because of my death. So, so the object that you look back to is my death, not all the way back to Egypt. So he's just replacing the focal point. Do this in remembrance of me. Why is that significant? It's significant to me because I think we look at the wrong thing. Paul says, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. In other words, somehow there's something wrong with how they're approaching communion or the Lord's Supper. And by doing that, they're actually like magnifying their hypocrisy. 
A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. In other words, he's saying actually somehow physical health is tied to missing the object of our faith. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further instructions. So there's something about making the Lord's Supper about yourself rather than about Christ and rather than something we do as a family or a community of believers, right? He says it's got to be about the, the blood and the body of Christ. And he says you should do it in a communal way that doesn't exclude some. So, so the only thing that's left is individualism, right? Um, so he's saying there's a way that people will come to this and say, I'm going to use this my own way. What does that look like? So there's an interesting thought that I was having um, about the Holy Grail, um, the Holy Grail is this thing in literature and folklore and medieval thought. Uh, the 1100s, it's kind of in, in things. And it got mixed into the Arthurian legend, King Arthur, that there's always this quest for the Holy Grail, that Jesus, the cup he used at the Last Supper, was also that chalice brought to the cross. And Joseph of Arimathea caught some of Jesus' blood. And so there's this whole Grail mythology. There are actually believed now like a, a dozen you know, one in Ireland and England and France. There's different candidates for being the Holy Grail. Even the current Pope supposedly um, used one of the ones that's believed to be kind of a Grail. This is, this is it's, it's, it's the Grail, the Holy Grail. In the literature or the, the mythology, it's this search for the actual Holy Grail because somehow if you were to drink from it, it it's going to confer certain benefits on you. So in the Arthurian legend, they're like questing for it because it's got all this mystical, magical power. Irish, Celtic legends kind of infuse into it. Uh, in Indiana Jones, remember? Um, which, which one was it? Indiana Jones in the search for the Holy Grail? Um, <laughs> I actually didn't know it was that simple. Um, but I remember the scene. They get to the the place where there's literally like a crusader knight still alive after hundreds of years, like protecting all of these like cups. And the guy comes in and he's trying to pick which one it is. And he picks the, the one with the most jewels and he drinks it and he like, ah, he like dies. <laughs> and it turns out the actual Holy Grail is just a simple like wooden carpenter's cup, you know, and it's interesting. And then everything starts going crazy because they're trying to run with the cup and they cross like a boundary and like whatever mythical powers the cup has or religious powers, it's like everything starts shaking and Indiana Jones is saying, forget the grail, forget the grail. And then he falls into a crevasse that's opening up in the ground and the grail's right there and all of a sudden he's like, the grail. And he's like trying to reach for it but he's about to die and his dad, Sean Connery, um, is saying... <laughs> What was the little boy's name he used for 
In, indie? Junior. Junior. Let it go. Let it go. Like, but the grail there, there is supposed to be like eternal life. Like it's, it's the fountain of youth almost. It's that idea, right? Here's, here's my thought. And you can, you can test me. I think we approach God, Jesus, and, and, and the Lord's Prayer or the, the, uh, the communion, the Lord's Supper, more like the chalice of the Holy Grail than the chalice of the Last Supper. What do I mean by that? It's an interesting thing that, Jesus, uh, that God always had the Israelites look back to deliverance out of Egypt, that salvation. It's the beginning of the faith journey. It's the beginning of the faith journey. What came after being saved from the the Egyptians. Um, God, I thought there was going to be more meat. And we don't get water regularly. And it seems like we're going in circles. And we're confused. We don't seem to be getting anywhere. There doesn't seem to be any purpose to this life or this existence. I don't know if I trust the people that say they're your leaders or, or they're your voice. Um, it's hot. It's not productive. We can't work the land. This is difficult. That's what comes after being set free. And then they come to the promised land, and they go into the promised land, and they do it, they do it the way I would have done it, like, finally, um, it's go time. Finally, we get to take all our testosterone and, like, run into battle and get somewhere. Finally, we get to get out of this place and into that place. Finally, we get to play a real-life game of risk, of world domination, and where are we going to put our troops, and where are we going to lay our battle plans, and finally, we get to, we get to go forward. And, and so, as Joshua, who's the head of all this, um, and has been waiting for this, is sitting there, an angel comes to him, and the angel comes, and, and Joshua says very logically, uh, whose side are you on? It's a pretty cool flaming sword. I hope it's not on the other side. Like, you know what I mean? But he, he's analyzing, whose side are you on? And the angel of the Lord um, says, wrong question. It's not whose side am I on. The question is, whose side are you on? You're, you're, in whole, you're on holy ground here. This isn't your battle. This isn't your deal. It's, it's my deal. And just to, to prove it to you, um, here's how we're going to take down Jericho. I want your soldiers to turn into a marching band. And we're going to march around Jericho, a walled city. Round and round she goes, um, getting made fun of. Um, and, and that's what we're going to do. And I can just imagine Joshua trying to sell that on a, a bunch of 20-something guys that are ready to fight. Um, but they do. They march around, then the walls, they blow the trumpets, they yell, and God brings down the walls. And the, the message here is very clear. The battle is the Lord's. That you serve God, it's not through your smarts or your plan or your will or, or your maneuvering or your time frame. You follow in obedience, okay? 
That's the story. So out of Egypt, into the desert, into the promised land, but it's always God kind of dictating terms. And the Passover was at the beginning of faith. And then you had faith in the desert. God, why? And then you have faith when you're entering the promised land. I don't, I don't know. Can, can we really do it that way? That's, there's tension to that, right? Um, here's what Jesus says. When you do this now, you do this in remembrance of me. You look back to salvation that was purchased for us on the cross. It's the beginning of what? Faith. When you accepted that forgiveness in your life, as Jesus said, literally born again with a new spirit, a new citizenship, a whole new orientation that way. It's just a different grid. When that happened in your life, that was the beginning of faith. And Jesus says that's the moment when you remember. Okay? When we celebrate it individualistically, I think we try to celebrate it like the Holy Grail. I want to use my faith to achieve results. I want it to get me something. I want it to do for me what I feel like should be done for me. I want it to make problems go away. I want it to erase circumstances. I want it to bring resolution. I want it to bring answers. Many of us, as we come here today, the temptation is going to be, please God, in this very sacred moment that feels very, like it's, it's, I can smell it and I can taste it. In this moment, fix it. Take away the need for faith because you've resolved all of the tension. God, work the magic. Work the miracle. Resolve the issues. I thought there was going to be more meat. I I thought there would be more water. I thought it would be directional and in a straight line, not in circles. I thought it wouldn't be so confusing or difficult or challenging. I thought I'd have more answers for my relatives that wanted to know why I'm believing in this God. I thought my kids would be better people. I thought I would be a better person. I thought society would be more redeemable than it seems to be. I'm tired. I'm confused. I'm lost. I'll come do this, but let it, let it just kind of blow away the mist. And Jesus says, that's not what it's for. Anchor yourself back at the beginning of faith where your sins were forgiven, where the promise was made that the one who saves here will come again, that there will be a time for that, that we proclaim his death until he returns, but in the middle, we're in that awkward between stage. I've been for a year sitting with some real challenges in my life. And I don't, I mean, I'm kind of buckling and I don't like it. And it's on my shoulders. And I, I, the more I buckle, you want to know what I do? I feel like it should be someone else's problem. It should be like my friends' problem or my family's problem or the elders' problem or your problem. How come you guys aren't fixing my issues? Don't you care about me? You know what I mean? I, you begin to do that. And really that bitterness is, is just a, a way of not being honest with God that I'm bitter with him. Um, that it's a little too long to sit with these problems. And in my prayers recently, God has been very, very clear. Ken, 
My desire is not to remove those problems. My desire is for you to sit patiently in the problems with me. Can you do that? Sure, sure, but if this person did this or that person did that, wouldn't it not, that's, that's Ken. Let me say it again. I know there's not much meat. I know the water can be few and far between. I know it's dry. I'm asking you to sit patiently with me. My promise isn't that everything is going to be fixed for you. It's not a magical holy grail that you control. But I am the one who saved you. I am the one that you put your faith in. I am the one that you trust. I am the one that you, you have hope because of. You can trust me. Sit patiently. And so when I come, if I come to this table, it's, it's as a weak person whose sins sent my Savior to the cross. And that of no doing of my own, I get another chance at this. It flips over. And I get to anchor myself into new life and new power that's going to give me new character, that gives me the relationship to look at life radically different and believe all things, hope all things. You know, if we expect life to be perfect, if we expect ourselves to be perfect, um, if we expect Christianity to be perfect, we're surely not to have much grace in life. We're surely not apt to look at our kids and accept imperfection or our coworkers or our friends. We don't anchor into control. We don't do it of ourselves. When we do it, we honor the body and the blood of Christ. We do it as a community and we remember that God is a God who saves. That is what we do. When we come down we're coming down in the middle aisles and then circling out the side, aisle, uh, side aisles. And there is gluten-free bread on the edges and regular bread in the middle, fresh baked with wine that was made by the empty nesters. Um, I go and meet other pastors around the country and I say, our retired people are cooler than your retired people. Um, and if you're in the back, you can just come. There's a couple stations. Um, the team, the worship team is going to sing and lead us in hymns and songs and spiritual um, songs that way. And just take the time to remember the deeper symbolism that, that you are a new creation in Christ and that it's the beginning of faith. It's the genesis of faith. And that whatever is going on that is trying your faith, there's something about anchoring back into this that will drive that faith. Let me pray for us. And then as they sing, it's just at your own time and place and space, um, you can come forward. Father God, thank you for sending your son to die for our sins, that we could be forgiven that we could have new life, that we could find adoption into your family, that we could have fellowship with you, 
that we could be reconciled as creation back to our creator. To know the peace and the joy and the love that you intended. For the kingdom of God is of righteousness, peace, and joy. Help us to anchor ourselves there. Help us to hear whatever gentle word you would have for us. Please sustain us in the ways we need to be sustained. We do this in remembrance of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.